from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State. Welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and you normally hear me do interviews a little bit later in the show, but I'm excited to be here with you at the beginning of the episode to introduce our first ever live episode of Democracy Works. We traveled to the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. a few weeks ago to record a conversation with Laura Rosenberger. Laura is a proud Penn State alumna and co-director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Uh, prior to joining the German Marshall Fund, Laura served on the um, Hillary for America campaign, and she's also served uh, in the State Department, on the National Security Council, uh, really, really knows her stuff when it comes to democracy. And as she says in her Twitter profile, she is a passionate defender of democracy. Um, and you'll really hear that come through in this conversation. Laura is one of the, the leading voices in the efforts to uh, protect the, the U.S. and its democracy from foreign interference from Russia and other countries. So without further ado, let's go to the National Press Club for Laura Rosenberger in conversation with McCourney Institute director and Democracy Works host Michael Berkman. All right, thank you, Chris. Laura, welcome, thank you. Thank you for, it's such a privilege to be here. Yeah, well, welcome to Democracy Works. Thank you. Usually this is Jenna's position to ask the questions, and Chris and I then comment on her questions, so I don't know what will come of this afterwards, but uh, I've been, we've been looking forward to this for a long time. Have you here a month before the election is really special. 34 so thank days. You. Yes, it is. 33? Somebody's I'm losing count, but yeah. yeah. Somebody's keeping track. So uh, I want to cover a few areas today. I'll talk a little bit about the alliance. We'll start there. Uh, I want to talk a little, a little bit about your sense of whether Russia or another state actor is currently or will possibly interfere with the 2018 election. Uh, have you worked through some of the ways that this interference might occur? All right. Uh, I also, we have students here today. We have uh, a group of students who are interning in DC. And we also have some students that came down from Penn State, part of the Pi Sigma Alpha, the uh, Political Science Honor Society. I think they somehow spent the day caught up in the protests at the Hart Office Building. <laughs> So they're Democracy in action. <laughs> Democracy in action, absolutely. Theme, our McCourney theme last year actually was uh, democracy and dissent, so <laughs> good to see it. Mm -hmm. And uh, to conclude, I'm going to ask you a couple of quest, uh, questions that the uh, McCourney Institute uses on its Mood of the Nation poll, which is a poll that we conduct. So, uh, and of course, anything else you want to talk about. All right, so let's get started. Thank you again. So uh, I want to ask you about the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which you co-direct with James Fry. Jamie Flagg. Jam Jamie, Jamie Fly. Fly, I'm sorry. That's Jamie well, Fly, my fly. typo, who was a national security advisor for Marco Rubio. Exactly. Is that right? Yep. So what, what are you uh, hoping to accomplish with the alliance? So the alliance um, is a bipartisan and transatlantic initiative that Jamie and I founded together a little over a year ago. Um, and, and you may say, you know, wow, in this moment, how is it possible that 
Hillary Clinton's former foreign policy advisor and Marco Rubio's former national security advisor are, are working together on anything. Well, my view on this is if we can't agree that our democracy um, is an issue that we need to work together to protect and defend, um, then we've really lost the whole ballgame. Um, and, and, you know, there's plenty of things I disagree with him on. Mm -hmm. um, we have some good sparring fights on Iran policy, for instance. Um, but it takes a functioning democracy to be able to have those debates, yeah. right? And I want to be able to have those healthy policy debates. Yeah. So with the alliance, um, what Jamie and I came together to do with this is, you know, we both from different perches um, over the past, you know, few years have seen how democracy is, you know, in the national security world, we often think about democracy in terms of values, in terms of something we promote in other countries. At some point we stopped forgetting, or we stopped remembering that we need to actually tend our own garden, that our democracy takes work, um, that we have to actually defend it, that it, that it can be undermined by others who want to weaken us. Um, and we've had some pretty serious wake-up calls about that. Um, and so mm -hmm. from a national security perspective, we think that it's incredibly important that we understand the way that foreign powers are interfering in our democracies, are trying to undermine our democracies, um, that we develop strategies to be able to, to uh, push back on these, uh, on these efforts, and that we build resilience in our own democracy mm -hmm. so that we're less vulnerable to it. Because a lot of these tactics that are being used by Russia and others, they're exploiting our own weaknesses. They're exploiting our vulnerabilities. And that means we've got to actually take action with ourselves mm -hmm. to make sure that we are able to withstand these attacks. Yeah, good. Yeah. You, you have a fascinating dashboard on your webpage that you call Hamilton 68. Yes. Can you explain a little bit about what that does? Yeah. First of all, let me tell you about Hamilton 68. Well, I was going to ask you about the name, too. Yeah, but yeah. So the name what, is important. Yes, it is. So it comes from Federalist 68, I assume. It does. Yeah. It does, in which Alexander Hamilton warned mm. about the dangers to American democracy of interference by foreign powers. And I think sometimes the reason we wanted to use that name is I think sometimes for a lot of us, you know, the Russian interference conversation, it feels like something jumped out of a, you know, spy movie and into our living rooms, right? It feels kind of crazy. Um, and then sometimes, you know, we also hear sometimes like, well, why does this really matter? You know, mm -hmm. um, how is this really a problem, et cetera? And for us, it's like this was so core to the birth of our constitutional system um, that our founding fathers warned about the danger if a foreign power tried to interfere in our democracy and in our political process. Mm -hmm. And so we took the name from that. What the dashboard actually does is it tracks a network of Russian-linked Twitter accounts um, that are pushing various kinds of messages on social media. Um, and in the past year that we've been tracking this particular network, um, you know, I think well, we wanted to, to launch this so that we could understand the kinds of tactics that were being used, the kind of mm -hmm. messaging that was being pushed. Um, and the, over the past year, we've seen um, these accounts weighing in on everything from 
the debate around NFL players taking a knee during the national anthem protest, um, to Roseanne Barr's, um, you know, rather racist comments. Um, and they take both sides of these they issues, often don't they? take both yeah. sides. They often do. Because it's because the goal is to sow divisiveness. You, that is one of the goals. Mm -hmm. Yes, on many of these issues, the goal is to sow divisiveness. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, there's sometimes other goals, which is to. Um, make certain um, make certain conversation or make certain stories seem more prevalent than they actually are. So these things called bots, automated accounts, basically will. Um, you can the way I kind of think about this is that um, the online information space it's it's like it's a whole ecosystem, and you can actually sort of bend it in a way, right? You can distort the information ecosystem by making certain things seem more prevalent than they actually are. Um, it's like you know, if you were to sort of be sending out a, a mailer back in the old days, and you'd have to hand crank many, 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 many more of them out, but you could just sort of like do that in mass online. And, mm -hmm. and so sometimes it's about taking a very sort of um, extreme view and making it seem much more prevalent than it may actually be. Um, that's another kind of, of tactic that we see. And so we've used this dashboard to, to study um, to study and, and sort of inform and educate policymakers, journalists, um, in the public. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So w what is the intent? How do you want people to be using it? Who you're aiming at, at policymakers or the general public, or it was it was designed to be a very publicly accessible tool. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we it's it's funny sometimes, um, not so funny, haha, -ha, but you know, <laughs> funny, interesting. Funny in the sense that things are funny right now. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, when we launched the dashboard um, in August of 2017. Um, None of the um, none of the accounts that we now have had confirmed that um, from the Internet Research Agency, which was what's commonly referred to as the St. Petersburg Troll Farm, um, all of those accounts that have now been disclosed and shut down, and thanks to congressional investigations, we've seen the contents of some of those accounts, and we know some things about what they were pushing. Um, when we launched this thing in August of 2017, the companies were largely still not acknowledging that there was even an ongoing problem. Um, and had not released any of that, had not shut down these accounts, um, th those accounts at that time. Um, and so a lot of the intent early on was to call attention to the fact that this is still a problem, right? I think one of the things about this issue is we often talk about it in terms of the election, but all those issues that I just talked about that we've seen these accounts weighing in on, those have nothing to do with elections, right? As you said, it's got to do about division, it's got to do about mm -hmm. polarization. And so um, we wanted to call attention to the fact that it was ongoing, um, to give people insight into what they were talking about um, and, and try to expose it. I mean, again, as I said earlier, I think one of the really important things in addressing this problem is building resiliency. Um, we talk about sort of inoculation almost against these tactics. I think you know, the more people are aware of the way that these tactics are used and operate, um, people will be a little bit more you know, skeptical of information online or at least think twice or you know, be able to evaluate it um, with a broader context. And so a lot of the goal, um, in some ways, we, we sort of uh, made a lot of progress on some of that. And now it's really about studying and just tracking you know, what are the various things that, that they're engaging on. And it's, we see almost every divisive issue. Well, I'm glad I asked you about the name, because the, the Federalist 68 can also be read as a sort of defense of the Electoral College in terms of the quality of the person that's chosen for the president. But that's not what you were referring to. No, yeah. it is not. Yeah. It is not. I would say that it is also important to have quality people as president. Yeah. So, so how likely do you think it is that we wake up on the day after the election and realize that something's not right? 
So let me kind of back this up for one second mm -hmm. um, and kind of go to one of the points However, I, However you want to go yeah, into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the points I just made was, of course, about how this is ongoing. Um, and how um, it didn't stop after 2016, and how so much of the effort we see um, in terms of interference in our politics um, actually has nothing to do with elections themselves. Um, and, and I think that that's really important to bear in mind, because in some ways, you know, the, the question of interference in 2018 itself is almost moot, because there's just an ongoing effort to undermine our democratic institutions, to polarize Americans, to make us less effective at tackling real problems, to make us less able to be a global leader, because we're so focused on dealing with our drama here at home. Um, so, so I think it's important to think about election interference um, in the broader context. Now, that being said. But, but you're more concerned about democratic inter interference I, into our democratic politics more, uh, more generally. So I think they are both problems, right? Mm -hmm. I see election interference as a part of the ongoing interference in a democracy. Now, mm -hmm. all that being said, elections are one of the most important institutions in any functioning democracy, right? Uh, if, if you don't have functioning elections, you don't really have a functioning democracy. So I think that, that they are a particularly ripe target for interference. I think that they are, um, they are vulnerable um, in very particular ways. Um, you know, Americans, I mean, any electorate is gonna be most focused on political issues mm -hmm. um, and potentially divisive issues around the time of elections. Um, election infrastructure is also vulnerable vulnerable in specific ways. I mean, we know in 2016 that 21 states had parts of their electoral infrastructure probed. Right. I think one thing that's important to remember in this in this piece is that it's not just about changing votes. I think people think about just the voting booths. A lot of what was actually probed in 2016 was voter rolls. Right, the registration rolls. So, so you take people off the you rolls. You can take people and, off the rolls. Yeah. You can just change their middle name. Right, I could show up and be Laura Nicole Rosenberger instead of Laura Michelle Rosenberger, um, and at the very least have to file a contested ballot, right? Mm -hmm. And you do that with enough people, and then you've just cast doubt on the whole thing, right? Um, so there's that kind of vulnerability. Well, and that strikes me as very serious. It's a very so, serious vulnerability. So I, I, I get what you're talking about, about the divisiveness in politics yeah. generally. <clears throat> but the idea that people would lose confidence that an election is legitimate totally. is, I mean, that's the heart of a democratic system and Absolutely. of the peaceful transfer of power. Yeah, I mean, and, and it goes actually hand in hand with, uh, with on the sort of the divisiveness and the information and the conspiracy theories is also, I think um, trying to eliminate the idea that there is a knowable truth, right? So eliminating people's trust in information, eliminating people's trust in, in our electoral systems. Mm -hmm. um, there's another scenario um, that I was just talking with somebody about today that I'm, I'm also quite concerned about, which is imagine that you don't even like have to have a hack on any piece of election infrastructure, but we all know and we're talking right here about how vulnerable our systems are. Well, we wake up in the morning after you know the midterm, so November seventh, and um, and we're seeing information being pushed on social media um, that is saying that claiming that there was a hack mm. in a certain state where you know maybe things were close um, or in a few states, and there probably doesn't even have to have been a hack. It will probably take a little while to be able to determine if there has been a hack if it, if one is claimed. Mm -hmm. um, you know, hopefully not the 10 months it took after 2016 to figure out how many states had been hacked. Um, DHS has like made some progress on that front, but um, but it could take a little while, and so you could have this period of real chaos. And then you layer on top of that um, another thing that we've seen happen is the organization of protest.
tests, right? So in 2016, but even more recently, just this summer, we saw um, fake Russian accounts um, and fake Russian groups creating protests, and trying to get real Americans. And then the counter-protests. And then the counter-protests. Counter right. counter yeah. Trying probably to spark violence, actually, between the two different groups. Um, so you, you put out false information about a hack. You amplify that information on social media. You then organize protests and counter-protests. And then you've introduced complete and total chaos into the system. So yes, a lot of problems with that could be introduced around elections without even having to do anything um, to you know, directly hack the infrastructure. Yeah, so that, that kind of gets to my next question. You may have already answered it, but I, I mean, I was thinking, so you were had kind of a front row seat of the hacking when you were in the National Security Council, right? When they first starting to get so a I had feel for that? Well, so I had left the National Security Council for the campaign. Well, I went mm -hmm. back to, yes, I, I was out of government by the time the hacks um, during the election cycle started. I was in government um, when we saw Russia deploying some of these tactics in Ukraine. Right. And mm -hmm. trying some of these tactics in Ukraine. So that was like Ukraine. a test run in Ukraine. There's a lot of test it? running yep. that happened in Ukraine uh, in 2014. Mm -hmm. And so I was going to ask you, it's, uh, it's, it's a, to go back to the title of the talk today, yeah. which is uh, about imagination. Yeah. What, what are, how has your imagination about what's possible changed? I mean, what, what, what are you, you talked a little bit about what you're imagining, but yeah. what, what else is there out there that? Yeah, um, a couple months ago, um, I talked about you know, the fact that the 9-11 the Commission talked about the failures that led to that attack um, as a failure of imagination. Um, that um, government um, didn't imagine um, some of what was possible. Um, you know, there were a lot of failures across a whole range of, of fronts. Um, and for me, what we saw in, in 2016 um, and around these issues was a failure to imagine. Um, you know, we saw some of these tactics being employed in Ukraine, mm -hmm. um, but a lot of people assumed that was just something that uh, Putin wanted to do on his periphery didn't really think about the fact that we might be vulnerable, right? This goes back to my point about forgetting we needed to, to tend our own garden here at home. Mm -hmm. um, social media companies um, had no idea, um, didn't, you know, didn't imagine that uh, the you know, platforms they were building to connect people could be weaponized in a way that would be totally turned against us. Um, and so you know, this failure to imagine concept is one that's been really important to me because I do mm -hmm. think it's important that we not only understand what's happened, but understand what, what else could be possible. So yes, I, I just painted some gloomy scenarios um, of, of what I think. Yes, they are. What I think is yeah. possible. Um, I mean, I'll take it one step further, which mm -hmm. is um, you know, when I look at the kinds of tools that are being developed with artificial intelligence and machine learning. Hmm. Um, there's a number of different things that, um, that could make this problem much worse. So one of the things that's a subject of a lot of conversation right now, um, mo both among the tech community and the policymaking community, is something called deep fakes, um, which are deep fakes. Deep fakes. Mm -hmm. Just essentially, um, to sort of sum it up, is manipulated audio and video content. Um, using artificial intelligence tools um, that basically make content, um, you know, it, it makes it unintelligible to a human eye or ear that it's been altered at all. <laughs> We're pretty well trained that if you see something on video, you believe it, right? I mean, just kind of like as human beings, that's sort of what we what we do. Um, Seeing is believing. Well, seeing may not be believing when it comes to some of these kinds of things. Right, and the ground has been tilled on fake news right. so that when something like that starts to happen, it 
It could blow up yeah. very quickly. Yeah, it can blow up um, very quickly. Now, mm -hmm. the good news on that one is there may be some technical solutions that make it easier to detect and halt. Mm -hmm. um, but that's also going to be imperfect. And that's just one example. Um, when we come to other kinds of, of advanced technology, especially um, in, in ways that um, a different sort of authoritarian power like China um, is developing and deploying, um, there's going to be a whole lot of other ways um, that those tools can be applied mm -hmm. to interfere in and undermine democracies. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about China. So the president the other day at the National Security Council said that the uh, Chinese were meddling in our elections. It didn't offer any particular evidence about it. Uh, and then there's a story in Bloomberg News today about these little chips that the Chinese have been putting into servers. Uh, seems like uh, more like economic espionage or industrial espionage than, than political. Are, are there, is there Chinese interference in, in our elections? And what does that look like? Now, a couple of thoughts on this. One is, China is engaging in political interference um, in numerous parts of the world. So in Australia, they've actually just had a very large scandal um, that's resulted in some real change, actually some positive change, um, passage of some laws that, that tighten um, you know, the loopholes that were allowing um, essentially Chinese equivalent of oligarchs um, connected to the Chinese Communist Party to directly fund politicians in Australia to take positions that were favorable to China and not Australia, right? So you had some pretty large, um, essentially, mm -hmm. political corruption scandals um, that erupted in Australia um, and some attempts by, um, by the Chinese Communist Party to covertly influence particularly what is a, a sizable ethnic Chinese um, Australian population. Mm -hmm. um, so you had that. But I also think it's important to understand that China is a very different actor than, than Russia. Um, it has different strategies, different goals, um, and, and that means its tactics will be different. So I think largely what we see here in the United States, it's still being understood. Um, it's still a lot of unknowns. I think China's playing a much longer game. I think their tactics are much more subtle. Mm -hmm. um, I think they're certainly less about playing on divisions. I think it's much more about currying long-term influence um, in covert ways. Um, but I think the technological piece is incredibly important in this conversation. So yep. I mentioned China and artificial intelligence. Yep. Um, I'll paint another doom and gloom vision, mm -hmm. which is, um, so China um, domestically now is, um, is instituting this system of a social credit score where um, all Chinese citizens um, by the end of next year will be assigned a social credit ranking that will be linked up through facial recognition technology. Um, this is like Black Mirror did an episode it on this. It is, <laughs> and it's real and it's happening, and they're test driving it in the Muslim majority um, uh, province of China called Xinjiang, um, where they have taken this to the, um, to the length of you know, there's like hundreds of cameras on every corner that is constantly being processed through facial recognition technology that's tracking um, pretty much all the Uyghur Muslims there who have QR codes attached to their homes. And there's about a million of them who have now been put in re-education camps. Um, it is a complete and total surveillance system. You couple that with the great firewall that China has built um, and their censorship, which they're now
now exporting outside of their borders. They're tracking Uyghur Muslims in the United States and in France. This has all been documented in the press if you think I'm making any of this up. Um, and, and you can basically build a high-end system of authoritarian censorship and control using technology. Yeah. Um, I am much more worried about the longer-term, more insidious kinds of political subversion, covert kind of stuff um, that, that we've been talking about here. You know, they've talked about these concerns about the China Daily putting inserts uh, in an Iowa newspaper. I mean, we're the United States of America. If we're afraid of inserts uh, in, a, in an Iowa newspaper, then I think we've got some bigger problems. Um, yeah. but, so, but I want to I wanna keep our eye focused on the, on the real threats, because they're there and they're, and they're real. Um, and I think the last point I would just say on this is, um, the president and the vice president both said, claimed that China is interfering in the midterms because they don't like the president. And I think that that's very dangerous. And it goes back to sort of where I was starting on why we can't politicize this question of interference in our democracy. When we start to think that our adversaries are picking sides, when we start to think that this is about one party or one politician, um, we then lose our ability to actually mount a united fight. Our adversaries care about weakening us as a country. They care about hurting our democracy because our democracy is the core of our strength. Mm -hmm. um, when I was a civil servant, my oath was to defend the Constitution. My oath was, was not about defending borders. My oath was to defending the Constitution because that was our that, that represents the core of who we are as a country. Yeah, but it does seem that the Russians came in on, I mean, it, 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 they want to disrupt democracy. Yes. But, but they did also come in on Donald Trump's side. Doesn't it, didn't it seem that way? Isn't that where the evidence is pointing? So the intelligence community assessment from January 2017 yeah. assesses that the Russians had three goals. Um, and that um, and that helping get Donald Trump elected was one of those three goals. Yes, yep. that's right. And so the partisanization of this whole issue is, in my view, part of the reason why we haven't been able to have a really open and thorough investigation of what's happened. Uh, what is your sense of, I want to ask this in two ways, mm -hmm. like how have the Russians changed their behavior in response to whatever we've been up to, and, and also maybe what you're up to, if they're attuned to that. Maybe they, they are. Maybe they are on Hamilton 68. <laughs> is it a point of they pride are. to be on Hamilton 68, or do they try to avoid it? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I, we see some. We see things come full circle sometimes. Um, my favorite was when they put out a um, Sputnik article quoting. You know, Sputnik's one of their propaganda um, uh, channels, um, and they put out a Sputnik article attacking us, citing their former ambassador to Washington, uh, Sergei Kislyak, who's if anybody's following some of the Mueller stuff, is is often cited as one of the people in the meetings, right? Okay. So, anyways, um, so. The Sputnik article quoting Sergei Kislyak mm -hmm. attacking us for our work, that article showed up on our dashboard as being shared by the network that we track. It was like <laughs> this very meta moment. Yeah. It was also very useful in proving that we were, that we're right and what yeah. we're tracking. Mm -hmm. Another thing that's more concerning, um, we, uh, so Facebook a few months ago um, took down a group of fake pages that had been created around, um, sort of counter protests to the Unite the Right rallies, so then so protesting neo-Nazis, right? But so these were pages that were targeting sort of the left side of the political spectrum, trying to recruit them to protest. It turned out that the pages were created by fake accounts from Russia. Um, but in developing those pages and, and creating those events, 
um, the Russian actors actually did a lot more spade work. So while in the past they would kind of just create these things out of whole cloth and just put them up there and hope people found them or maybe they'd put some advertising dollars toward them to get people mm -hmm. to be attracted, this time they actually used social media to reach out to real activists and reach out to real groups and try to get them to buy in in advance. Now these people and these activists and these groups had no idea that the person they were engaging with, the person they were engaging with the other side, was a you know, <laughs> Russian operative sitting in St. Petersburg or where have you. Um, but they're embedding themselves more in real communities of real Americans, which does two things. One, <laughs> It actually does three things. One, it makes it harder for the companies to detect because if they're looking for false identity, other indications of artificial um, creation, you know, by, by embedding themselves with real groups, it's harder. One. Two, um, they make it more difficult as a decision for the companies to remove the content because you're also then removing content from real Americans expressing real views. And then the third thing that it does is it actually has the effect of then basically discrediting all those Americans and those groups, right? So the, the Russians have now basically succeeded in casting doubt on entire protest movements or organizations by saying, well, you guys might be Russian or you might be working with Russians. And so, again, if we think about sort of the many ways that this is insidious yeah. for democracy, you know, hindering ab Americans' ability to freely assemble, to freely protest, to freely dissent, to do what folks were doing today, right? To have people casting doubt on whether you're there because you really believe it or because Russians put you there, um, you know, that really, really yeah. um, introduces another dimension to this equation. Yeah, so what should we be doing that we're not? So a couple of quick things. One, we have got to come together as a nation on this, right? That's mm -hmm. sort of like first and foremost. If we, we have got to get out of the partisan trap on this issue, and we have got to be able to come together as a nation, and I'm just enough of an optimist to believe that that's possible. That's mm -hmm. number what, one. Why is that? <laughs> Maybe. Um, you know, I, I mean, partly it's because I've seen examples of it working, right? I mean, mm -hmm. in the work that, that I'm doing and leading. But, mm -hmm. you know, the Senate Intelligence Com Committee, um, yes. you know, has mm -hmm. actually, it's been slow. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, they've, they've, all, they've had to take some time to be able to really methodically do what they're doing. Um, but do, do you feel this all should have been public, though? I mean, I mean, to, my, my sense is that usually when we've had some kind of national disaster and yeah. then we investigate it, the hearings are open. But it seemed to me that once Comey testified, everything was shut down. And so Americans really, the only way they know what's happening is through the media. They're not, yeah, they can't I mean, see any of this. What we, what we really need is a bipartisan commission, um, just like we had after 9-11, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's kind of taken out of the hands of any particular congressional committee um, that has, you know, obviously its own interests at play, um, where partisan politics can be introduced, um, and really professionalize it. Um, and and that's, that's what needs to happen. The transparency and exposure piece is really important. But mm -hmm. at this point, I'm honestly less concerned about looking backwards than I am about like mm -hmm. trying to anticipate 
the next thing and prepare ourselves for it. And so is the answer in government? Is it in, is it a Facebook and Twitter issue or? So we, uh, my team, we refer to this as a whole of society problem. It's mm -hmm. one of those nice fluffy terms, but government needs to take action. That's Congress and the executive branch. The private sector needs to take action. That's particularly the tech companies. Um, and then uh, civil society needs to take action. And that's doing things like back to basics, um, civic education, media literacy, all of, all mm -hmm. of these things. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of laws that I could list out for you that if Congress would pass them tomorrow, I'd sleep a lot better. They're, they're bipartisan. They're waiting there. Um, you know, there's just a couple people who um, are keeping them from moving. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so there's that. Um, I think the tech companies um, need to face a little more pressure from their user base. Um, I think uh, if people could actually um, take some collective action to, to force change uh, from the tech companies, I think that would make a difference. Um, and then I think we've just, we have got to find ways um, to be able to talk mm -hmm. to each other um, yeah. about these issues um, and, and take meaningful action as a country. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. Uh, so we like to end every podcast by asking our guests to answer uh, the four questions that we ask on the McCourtney Mood of the Nation poll. So here we go. So uh, what is it in politics today that makes you angry? <laughs> People generally do not have a hard time with this question. Yeah. <laughs> Deception. Deception, yeah. And what makes you proud? <sighs> People have a little more trouble with this one sometimes. De dedication? <laughs> Dedication. Uh, what makes you hopeful? Uh, the Parkland students. We've heard that before. Have you? Yes. And uh, what makes you worried? Apathy. Apathy. Apathy and partisanship. I commend you for one-word answers. We haven't done <laughs> So thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you for excellent questions.